This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, May 28, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. Medicare's touted efficiency is a decades-long error, or at worst, a lie. That from Charles Silver, co-author of the new Cato Institute book, Overcharged, Why Americans Pay Too Much for Health Care. The book details how Medicare's overseers spend without regard to value, allow fraud to decimate the program, and have few incentives to control costs. What do you see as the major cost drivers for Medicare today? Uh, Well, everybody knows that prescription drug prices are going up, and Medicare uh, treats a population of, covers a population of elderly people, many of whom are uh, in need of expensive medications. So drug prices are certainly a cost driver. Uh, Going forward, the expansion of the Medicare population owing to the retirement of the baby boom generation will also be a very significant uh, driver of costs. And then there's just the general tendency of the government to spend more money. Uh, There's a lack of uh, pressure exerted by the government to moderate the cost of medical treatments. So in in your discussion with some of the groups that are gathered here in uh, Austin today, uh, you talked about this Uh, efficiency claim that is made on behalf of Medicare that I got to admit, I never heard before. Hmm. Um, But uh, you said it's it's a pretty widespread. um, And the moment you brought it up, it made sense to me that, yeah, the denominator and the numerator both matter here when you're trying to calculate efficiency. So so as best you can, what is the argument that people make about uh, why they believe Medicare is an efficiently run program? Uh, First of all, this claim is very widespread. So it's the mantra of the uh, left-leaning group that supports Medicare for all and public payer options. Um, And the idea is that uh, private insurers supposedly spend something like 14 to 17 cents per dollar uh, on things like advertising and other administrative costs whereas Medicare spends only two to three cents per dollar on administrative costs. Um, So looking at this simple-minded comparison uh, of administrative costs to total dollars expended by the program, Medicare looks relatively efficient. Um, But this statistic is quite, quite misleading. Uh, First of all, it's a measure of inefficiency. So it's a measure of administrative costs divided by total program dollars. So the higher the percentage, the less efficient a program is. Uh, One of the the reasons that this index is so misleading is basically that uh, the more money Medicare shovels out the door, the more efficient Medicare looks. So imagine if Medicare were suddenly to double or even triple the amount that it spends on healthcare treatments simply by paying higher prices for them. Uh, All of a sudden, the administrative costs wouldn't change, right? Those would still be the two to 3% of the current budget, but the total budget would double or triple. And as a result, instead of having a 2 to 3% administrative load, Medicare's administrative load would be one-third of that. It would somewhere between 0.6% and, say, 1.3%. Um, uh, Medicare should not be made look to look more efficient when it just shells out 
more money for the same treatments. Uh, but that's what this index does. And, and it's strange to consider it, it is, in a sense, an inefficiency uh, measure, but it's only an inefficiency measure of the ability to th- push money out the door, as you know. In a sense, that's exactly what it is. If you want if you want to know who's better at pushing money out the door, it's Medicare. <laughs> they will very, very cheaply send as many dollars out the door as we will let them. But that is not a good measure of the uh, desirability of spending on health care. So taking that, that 2% administration cost that uh, that proponents of Medicare tout, uh, they're on the low end when it comes to fraud. The assumption is that it's about 10% of total uh, Medicare spending. And that's, that's the low estimate for right. fraud. That's correct. So if Medicare's total budget is about uh, 600 billion, let's just use that number to keep, you know, keep it simple. Um, and if the, the federal government says it's 10%, now they've used that number forever, and it's basically a number plucked out of thin air. I think the actual amount of money lost to fraud is considerably greater, but let's take 10%. What that means is that Medicare is losing $60 billion a year on fraud. Um, so if you were to develop a realistic measure of Medicare's inefficiency, what you would do would be to say, okay, uh, how much does it cost Medicare to pay out a, a dollar to a provider for a service that was actually delivered to a patient who really needed it? Uh, and then you would take these fraud losses and you would put them into the numerator because these are just dollars that go out the door, but they're not spent on needed health care. Um, so they're like any other part of your overhead. So then you would take the $60, the, uh, the $60 billion in fraud losses and you would add to it Medicare's roughly $13 billion worth of other administrative overhead. So you would have a total administrative burden of about $73 billion, and you would have about $540 billion worth of payouts on valid claims. Well, now you're already, you've got, again, $73 billion divided by $540 billion. You're well over 10%. You're up to something like 14% uh, overhead Uh, on this inefficiency index just using the government's low-end estimate of fraud. If you were to take what I think is a realistic estimate of Medicare's fraud losses, your inefficiency uh, would be something like 50 cents on the dollar. So, uh, you know, this this would be a much more realistic and a much more depressing measure of Medicare's efficiency. So one of the claim that uh, what Bernie Sanders would like to see, he calls it Medicare for all. What of the claim that it's actually Medicaid for all? Because uh, in in Medicare, uh, people, there are co-pays, there are uh, fees, there are other costs that the individual who's receiving that care actually does pay. And in Medicaid, not so much. Well, I think the starting point is to uh, accept the, the the fact that if something seems too good to be true, it probably isn't true. And and Bernie Sanders' proposal is soup to nuts coverage for health care, every kind of medical treatment, including dental care, 
that's imaginable with zero copays, zero coinsurance requirements, no out-of-network charges, nothing like that, no at-the-margin contribution by the consumer at the point at which healthcare is delivered. Uh, any person with even the slightest faith in economics should realize that when you remove, when you make healthcare free at the margin, the consumption of healthcare is going to go through the roof. There, we're going to be massively increasing the amount of medical services that people consume. And the only possible realistic consequence of that is that spending will go up and up and up. Sanders has been uh, sort of living off of two claims. He says, on the one hand, we're going to save money because we're going to reduce administrative costs because Medicare is so much more efficient. That was the claim I was dealing with a second ago. That's only true if you use a measure of efficiency that ignores other kinds of costs like fraud, waste, abuse, and all this other uh, stuff. Um, the other thing he's been living off of is the idea that um, if you give the government control of the entire healthcare economy, it's suddenly be going to become a very aggressive price bargainer. So it's going to bargain down the cost of pharmaceuticals, for example, uh, and it's going to bargain down, I guess, payments to hospitals and doctors and all of that. And the, and the response to that, I think, is we've never seen that happen before. We've had uh, Medicare and Medicaid since the mid-1960s, so we have a lengthy history with the program expenditures and with the prices that are paid for um, uh, services, and we've had Medicare Part D, which covers uh, prescription drugs since 2003, so we have a, you know, a decade and a half's worth of experience with payments for uh, prescription drugs. And what we see is a constant increase in spending and no effort really to bargain over pretty much anything. Uh, so it's, it's kind of unrealistic to think that all of a sudden things are going to change and the government's going to start bargaining hard when historically it really hasn't bargained at all. And when, when it comes to uh, when we're talking about fraud earlier, uh, Medicare doesn't really pride itself and has no real political incentive, as far as I can see, to uh, preemptively stop fraud. No, I don't think Medicare even cares about fraud. Uh, you know, Medicare exists for one reason, and that is to push money out the door. It, it receives money in uh, from you know, taxpayers and premiums paid by Medicare beneficiaries, uh, and it pushes money out the door to providers who file claims. And its object is to push as much money out the door as quickly and as cheaply as it can. And that's why both you know, legitimate providers and criminals engage in fraud. Legitimate providers engage in all kinds of shenanigans to maximize the dollars that they receive from Medicare. And then criminals see that the doors to the Treasury are basically unguarded, and they just wander in. They start filing large numbers of claims electronically and getting payments, and then they disappear before they can be found and set up shop somewhere else. What, um, you know, what Bernie Sanders has proposed is obviously very sweeping, but is, is there anything in there that you've seen that you say, oh, well, this is probably a good idea? Is it just that simplistically presented that there's, there's not really any there there when it comes to substantive policy? 
Um, well, I believe in helping the poor with their health care needs, and to the extent that Medicare for All would have as one consequence that it would provide for a certain number of poor people, that would be desirable. But I also think that we can provide for the poor much better through a series of cash transfers than through something like Medicare for All. I mean, we don't need to have the government in the business of buying medical treatments for anyone. Why don't we just give people the money and let them buy the treatments themselves? Then they're the payers. They're the ones who are choosing the providers. So they're using the market to their advantage uh, and they're getting what they want because, you know, the the he who calls ever pays the piper calls the tune. So if you have consumers buying their own health care, they'll get better treatment. Um, so I don't think even as far as helping the poor is concerned that this is a very good way of proceeding. And you, you've, as you mentioned in your talk, your uh, your argument is essentially that the more skin we have in the game as individuals with respect to healthcare spending, the better off the system as a whole is going to be. Uh, you know, the, we don't have problems in other sectors of the economy like we have in the healthcare sector. We don't have the problem of costs consistently rising faster than the GDP. We don't have uh, the problem of prices being out of control. Uh, we don't have the problem of professional organizations having to call on their members to cut back on the services that they're providing because even they know that their members are performing services that don't work or that have very little value for patients or that even worse, expose patients to risks of harm without offsetting benefits. Uh, but we have all of these things and many, many, many other problems, including rampant fraud in the healthcare sector. And I think that any desirable set of reforms will do two things. One is it will reorient the market or reorient providers so that their overriding interest is in serving patients well. Uh, and that's what markets are really good at. Markets uh, are consumer driven. They encourage providers to develop ways of meeting the needs uh, and wants of the people who are paying them. The patients will be in the driver's seat and that's a huge plus. Uh, the other thing that I think uh, a set of reforms needs to do is exert very significant pressure on providers to charge less. Uh, under the current system, prices only go up, but uh, there is actually a uh, segment of the healthcare market in which first-party payment predominates. That is the retail sector. And there are lots of services that are sold on a cash basis to people who pay for them directly in the retail market. We're talking about things like uh, LASIK surgery for eyes, uh, in vitro fertilization services for couples that are having difficulty getting pregnant, um, uh, dental services, uh, dental treatments of certain sorts, uh, you know, a variety of services that are not covered by insurance that people want uh, and pay for directly. Vasectomy is another example. Breast augmentation is another. So there are lots of these services, and we can uh, talk about the prices and how they've changed over time. And if you go into the retail market, what you find is that prices are steady. Sometimes prices decline. Uh, the providers are very much consumer-oriented, uh, and things work pretty well. There is no cost crisis uh, in the first-party payment segment of the healthcare market. There never has been, to my knowledge. 
Uh, and if we converted most of the rest of healthcare, with the exception of things that are truly catastrophic, if we converted most of the rest of the healthcare system over to direct payment, where people were spending their own money, then providers would have to start competing on the basis of price, and I believe prices would fall. I believe not only would healthcare spending not continue to increase, but I believe we might actually see a contraction in spending as prices started to come down. Um, a point that you make is a point that uh, many people have made, and it, I think it bears repeating over and over and over again, which is, uh, and you put it very, very cleverly, I thought, which is uh, your car insurance doesn't provide for fill-ups or routine maintenance, and, but health insurance frequently provides for routine maintenance on you. Yeah, people use their hospital or their healthcare insurance to pay for things that cost, you know, $150, $200, you know, a blood test that when you buy it yourself costs 50 bucks at a local retail outlet. People will use their insurance to pay for that. Uh, that is completely unlike the way insurance operates in all other areas. You buy property insurance for your house, it kicks in if your house is hit by lightning and burns down or suffers substantial damage. And the insurance kicks in above a very substantial deductible. Uh, so the expectation is that you're gonna pay for most of the repairs on your house yourself. And you're certainly not gonna use your insurance to pay for house painting or you know having your uh, plumbing upgraded, things of that sort. These things people pay for out of pocket. And as a result, the market delivers these kinds of services at prices that people can afford. But when you come to healthcare, everybody again expects to use it to cover all kinds of little things. And it's a very, very bad way of paying for these things. Uh, there's no benefit to having uh, an insurer buy these services instead of having people buy them directly. Uh, in fact, it's a detriment because the insurance company has to add its own profit and overhead onto the cost of these services in order to stay in business. So why are we paying uh, this additional sum to insurance companies to cover these treatments that we could easily pay for out of pocket. You know, most people pay in rent, you know, $1,000 or more a month uh, without any help from insurance. If your medical costs over the course of a year are just going to be a couple of thousand bucks, why are you paying for them with insurance? Pay for them yourself and save the insurance premium. Charles Silver is co-author of the new Cato book, Overcharged, Why Americans Pay Too Much for Healthcare. We spoke at the State Health Policy Summit in Austin, Texas. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.